Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, thanks for listening to the Pointless Exercise podcast. I'm glad you enjoy it. Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, the podcast is great, but I wish there was a version of it that I could read in the can. Well, you're lucky. Because now there is. Actually, there has been all along. Only now, you could pay for it. Such a deal. But it is a deal because the Pointless Exercise newsletter, which has gone to the subscriber model as of opening day, for a week after opening day, is running a 15% off promotion. So the $6.99 monthly uh, fee is only $5.94. Or you can do an annual, which regularly is $69.99. It's only $59.49. What a deal. Think of it as subscribing to The Athletic, but only getting the good parts. That's PointlessExercise.com. Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. It's time to remember this crap with Mike Donahue. Mike, how are you doing? Andy, doing good. Thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm terrific. Um, it's the opening day eve. Yes, opening day eve, and so now we are about to spin the wheel and figure out what the hell we're supposed to talk about for the next hour. Well, it's what we do. Maybe it'll be a, a season with a particularly memorable opening day. That'll be fun. Maybe it will be. 1994. I don't want to talk about the roads. All right, here we go. We're going to spin the wheel. We did we we did 1997 last time, so that has been removed. And here we go. Is it 1992? Uh, 1992 Cubs? Okay, let's do this. So I could tell you that... Do you remember... Although, you, as well, a let me start, ticket holder, let me, you probably let, didn't care. Well, let, I was gonna say, let, let you, me start with my, my, my five fast facts. Oh, that's facts, right. What are your five fast facts about the 1992 Cubs? 1992, first year of Larry Himes, fact number one. Fact number two, first year of Sammy Sosa uh, as a Cub, um, um, having been acquired for George Bell uh, in addition to Ken Patterson, 1992. Um, also, the last time that Sean Dunson would play a game for about 19 months, um, so that was fun. Uh, I'll throw in an opening day fact. Cubs beat future Cub left-hander Terry Mulholland in a veteran stadium that year when Mark Grace uh, hit a nice three-run dinger off him. Fact number five, Chuck McElroy recorded the save in that game. Um, and and that's just five random facts. Doesn't really tell you much about the season, but we may come back to him if we have to. But The stylish Chuck McElroy. Yeah. Glasses. Yeah, he, uh, he Chuck was the remnant of really, I guess you would say, uh, the Raphael Palmero 
um, situation as far as uh, Jim Fry having dealt Palmero and Jamie Moyer. And of course, who can forget Drew Hall for uh, one year of Mitch Williams leading the Cubs to the division. Of course, Cubs also got what, Paul Kilgus and Steve Wilson, Curtis Wilkerson. And, um, uh, but Williams, of course, flamed out, was gone. And uh, for pennies on the dollar, Jim Fry then got Bob Scanlon and Chuck McElroy for Mitch Williams and uh, but for a while Andy let's let's not let us not forget that on that glorious day in April almost literally 19 years ago I'm sorry 29, 29 years ago, years ago. Years ago. Good. when the when the Cubs jumped out to a, a, a one nothing record with uh, Chuck McElroy uh, retiring the side in the in the ninth inning and we we, we were feeling good about Chuck at that moment <laughs> We you mentioned Bob Scanlon. All I remember about Bob Scanlon, and that wouldn't have happened in this season, because this is the great Jim Lefevre. Mm, Daydream Lefevre is not Mike Murphy, might tell uh, you. <laughs> uh, I think Jim Riggleman under hobbies on anything he's ever filled out it puts uh, uh, telling Bob Scanlon to warm up. <laughs> Bob pitched approximately 400 innings one year in the bullpen like when you play it a sounds- baseball video game and you go to get a guy up in the bullpen and then just forget that he's there and you check later and you realize that he's been warming up for five innings and that was that was <laughs> this Riggleman steve in real C-Sheck. life steve did you, did you see, who, see where steve c-sheck just landed uh i did and i forgot he's an anaheim angel so oh, oh he is <laughs> i'm sure joe won't use him at all <laughs> Steve, do you think you got 158 games in your arm this year? Because we're going to need it. Sure, Coach. So what I was going to say was, do you remember? So it's a phenomenon that doesn't exist with the Cubs right now, although given their current trajectory, it may very well come back. But So you'd always sell out opening day. Mm -hmm. Game two, not so much. Yep. So old style would buy a crap load of tickets. And give them away. It was the old style opener. That's what game two always was. I, I, went, to, I went to three You're old style kidding. openers. There, they would they would run a big full page ad in the Tribune, and you could just fill it out and send it in. And they said there was a lottery, but honestly, they had more tickets than they got stuff sent in. And you could you could request. I can't remember if you only if you're limited to two tickets. Um, but the, you just get sent tickets, and then we'd pile in a car from NIU and. Head on over for uh, for freeze our ass off for game two of the season. We did it in so you were there three and ninety four at least. So who what was their home opener? Was it the Cardinals? Oh, uh, let's look at ninety two. The one I remember wasn't it been this year. Um, the one I distinctly remember was against the Braves. Jose Guzman one hitter. No, no, because that was yeah. the opener. No, the opener was Greg Maddox. Going oh, that was game nothing. two. We didn't go to that one then. That's probably. So that must not have been the one we – that's the one year we didn't go. Um, but it was a game against the Braves where both Willie Wilson and Deion Sanders hit triples. Are you sure that this might not have just been the third game of the 93 season? Well, it season? could have been, but that would just ruin the story. Mike, oh, nobody, nobody's going to look this well, up. facts. What I remember is we used to get free tickets, and we would go to early season games. So, yes, it's, that's, it's very possible. that, But we had good seats right um, – basically right behind the third base dugout because there's nobody there. And watching this, like, Willie had to be 40 by then. 
And then Dion was not 40, but two of the fastest dudes ever hit triples. It was very impressive to watch both of them. Um, Dion hit a triple or Otis Nixon? It was Dion? It was Dion. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I couldn't have given two shits about Otis Nixon, even though he was fast. Right, and he just looked like like a like a just a little literal portrait of a Native American like chief. From yeah, he was a, cigar, he was a cigar store Indian. Yeah, not the Fred McGriff type, not the one that would drop throws that were thrown your way. Sorry. So, um, well, I mean, you know, that makes sense because even when the Cubs were bad, even before Tribune, oh, I mean, opening day has historically been the, a, a big ticket, and then who the hell wants to sit? in the shade uh, on an April afternoon otherwise. So uh, I was always game though. I mean, especially as a kid, any opportunity I'd have to get out there, even if it was to see the 92 Cubs and Bob Scanlon straight as an arrow fastball. Well, and that was no advanced bleacher tickets. So you could. Uh, No, it was 92. It was, was it, but did they, they, then they held some back. You could always just, maybe they just have enough demand. You could always just show up and get some. Yeah, the history on the bleacher tickets is that prior, uh, 1984 is the last season, actually, that they were um, day of game only. Because there was outrage, I remember, when Dallas Green had the nerve to start selling them uh, in advance. Um, as you can see, it didn't really do much to hurt the franchise. Um, and then they 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 didn't allow a season ticket pass. Because, of course, why would they, you know, yeah. um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s? Uh, till even later than that. So um, you could you could buy your ticket, your bleachers in advance in 92. Ooh, we had a good old style opener in 92. The Cubs beat the, their arch rivals, the Cardinals, 5-1, to one, behind the excellent pitching. Just two men. Oh, it took two guys to hold the Cardinals to a run. Sean Bosky, six and two thirds, four hits, one run. And Chuck McElroy, two and a third for the save. Old no school. hits. No walk. Telling you, man. Two we were on we were on that Chuck McElroy Express in April. The man was gonna lead us to the promise. We would get something for the what was left the remnant of the Raphael Palmero trade. I um before I get too far and I, before I forget, I'll just tell you that the Cubs ended up trading Chuck McElroy for Larry Lubers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the, so the trade it gets that, worse. The trade that hurt both teams, Larry Lubers for Chuck McElroy. That's where the Raphael Palmero value ended. Hey, where do you think Ryan Sandberg batted at the beginning of the 92 season? Gee, Andy, do you think he batted second? He did not. Wait, really? At least in this game against the Cardinals. Here's your batting order. Cleotha Chico Walker leading Chico, off in left field. Chico. Jose Vizcaino at shortstop. Mark Grace. He ended up having a, a nice season. Base. Uh-huh. Ryan Sandberg at second. Clean it up. Samuel Peralta Sosa playing center field. Mm-hmm. Dwight Smith in right field. Yeah, that's, oh, God. that's a choice. Brr. Gary Dwight Scott <laughs> at third base. Joe Girardi. Yes. And then this game, yes. Sean Bosky. And Sandberg, who was prone to slow starts, this would have yes. been game, what were they? This was game five for the Cubs uh, at the end of the game. 316, 348, 526. An anomaly. Well, maybe it's because right. he was hitting cleanup. That Lefevre, he was on to something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I think, yeah, that's – I don't remember Sandberg batting cleanup too much. I, I remember Bill James uh, pointing out that had uh, Sandberg and Grace flipped their spots, that, that like traditional thinking led – uh, you know, traditional managers to put their second baseman batting second and their, you know, line drive hitting first baseman third. Uh, but that both would have been better served had managers flip them. He I didn't, know you're going to take a Sam didn't, Sam didn't like hitting anywhere but second. I heard you say that, but I have a hard time. I mean, the guy never said a goddamn word, but maybe he got a little pissy. You're saying he wouldn't. I don't know. Are you saying Ryan Sandberg wouldn't say shit if he had a mouthful? Is that what you're saying? Well, they they jerked his ass from third base to second. Uh, I don't know. It was, I, I, maybe. I this don't know. Is, this is probably not the season for that. We probably should talk about that when we get to 83. Yes. But that didn't make any sense. It really didn't. I mean, I know because he, he would have been a gold glove third baseman. It wasn't yeah, that but... he had to play second base to be a gold glover. He was an incredible fielder. And they, maybe. at the time... Maybe there were more good second basemen than there were third basemen, and the Cubs had this gaping hole over there at third. That I know that they plugged the fucking penguin in. That's why they did it. But, but it's not like they had any second baseman that Sandberg was they, blocking. They had Bump mean, Wills. Bump Wills was their second baseman. How can you before. block Bump Wills? Bump Wills would fall over if he had to like move laterally. Was Mike Tyson um, still around? No, the white Mike, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson finally gone. Joe Strain, they gave Joe Strain a try after uh, trading Jesus Figueroa for him prior to 81. No when did good. they bring Manny Trio back? Uh, Trio back, but he was too old to play second. He oh, was a, not a Manny different Trio's, player. He, he could still 80s. play it today. Manny came back in 86 and played third and played outfield, and he would step in at second. But I think Sandberg, what made Sandberg special as a second base, and we can talk about this because he was kind of still in his peak, although maybe beginning the downside in 92. But defensively, what made him special and unique was his sort of range and this sort of uh, like this ESP-ish thing that Javi sometimes shows where he was just always in, in good position. And I, I don't know how helpful the range is to third the quickness would that would it was he also as quick? I mean, would he have been as great of a third baseman? Uh, I never considered it before, so I'm sort of thinking out loud. Uh, you said it, and I I'm just wondering if that's uh, it's if that's all the case. it's all I ever think about. Is that right? I'm obsessed. But Why it, did I, they move? Why did they move be, you, Ryan? It would be one thing if, like, they had, I don't know, um, I, I, I don't know if Sandra even had a contemporary. Is it because Hall Ken Hobbs died? Is that why they had to move? <laughs> I don't. I don't quite remember the years. Sixty-two. Is that right? What Ken Hubs would have only been in his twenty-first season. He, he won the, the rookie. He won the rookie of the year in sixty-two, but he died, I believe, after the sixty-three season. So he didn't die. I don't think he died immediately after his rookie of the year season. Okay, so in nineteen ninety-two, Ryan Sandberg played a fair amount of games, batting second, third, and cleanup. He also batted seventh once, but uh, that clearly he was pinch hitting for somebody. Um, Hmm. He actually he, he hit not well at all cleanup. In 29 games, 119 plate appearances, uh, 229, 319 on base, 381 slugging. Okay, uh, a month's worth. Four homers and 15 RBIs, and they said, all right, that's enough of that shit. Um, batting third, he was very good. Uh, he hit 322, 372, 510 in 200 and 226 plate appearances, six homers and 31 RBIs. But mm-hmm. when they had him bat second, he was very good. 319, 390, 556 slugging, 16 homers, 41 yeah. RBIs. So apparently Ryan knew what he was doing. 
And that was bat me second. I'm unstoppable when he hit me there. Now, part of it, I could, this is the disadvantage of us just pulling this out of our ass as we do it. If those cleanup appearances mostly happened early in the year, he never hit early in the year. No Correct. He actually almost outperformed his usual April. He, he was the. But well, that was only five games. Season. Who knows where? He, well, I could probably look it up. Well, it's five games to start the season. We said he ended up having. Oh yeah, twenty nine. What did you say? Twenty nine games or twenty nine at bats? Twenty nine games. Yeah. So they they obviously weren't consecutive, but they probably I'm going to guess the preponderance of it may have been early on, and he was struggling like right, he so, always did. And so here's his OPS by month. April and March, 755. May, 829. June, 831. July, 893. August, 800. September, 1.119. In 129 plate appearances in September, Sandberg hit 10 homers with 23 wow. RBIs. Yeah. Uh, it was right around the time that he had uh, been made the highest paid player of the game, surpassing Bobby Bonilla. Which I think the contract was to begin the following season, or I don't know how that worked. Uh, the other thing I'll say about Sandberg in 1992, he was still a really good defensive player. I mean, he was, you know, um, he was a surprisingly good offensive player from a position that had not for a long time really uh, seen a whole lot of that type of sort of power production, power and speed out of that. But he was. But by, by leagues, he was just a ridiculously good defensive second baseman. I pointed out he's one of only two second basemen in baseball history to have had six seasons of 500 assists, Charlie Geringer being the other one. He won a gold. Now, gold gloves are subjective, of course, but beginning in 84, he won it every single year through 91. And I remember because I'm a provincial Cubs fan getting extremely butthurt about Jim Leland's open, you know, dissing of Sandberg and oh, talking it, of his second baseman, Chico, Chico Leand. Chico Leand won the gold glove. And Chico Leand won the gold glove he, in 1992. Did he win it because he jumped over Joe Garriola's, Joe Garagiola's all, head? Is that All I can it? tell you, all I can tell you is that as I watched the 1992 NLCS rooting for Pittsburgh, uh, when they almost came back from a 3-1 series deficit and were leading late with Doug Dre back on the hill, that Jim Beloved's... Jim Leland's beloved Chico Lind, his little mascot, somebody he was more worried about winning the goddamn gold glove than a freaking pennant, booted a ball in the ninth inning, which ultimately led to Francisco Cabrera's lead-changing walk-off series ending hit. So, fuck you, Jim Leland. Right. Fuck you, Chico Lind. Right. Uh, and Sandberg never did that. Now, a rock, a ball may have hit a rock and bounced over his head. Yeah, well, that was just that shit, wasn't his shit was. Yeah, shit was going weird in San Diego, man. You could all feel it, you know, ever since from the point that Garvey hit the homer, even when the Cubs went up three nothing on Sunday. So I'm going to say. Right. So he won the Gold Glove eleven years in a row. Yeah, eighty-four to 80, eleven years in a row. Oh, right, he won it in eighty-three. Like I said, he won, he he was the first player in history to win a gold glove in his first season in a new position when he moved to second, which will be mentioned again when we talk about 83. Well, now he did play it. second base in 1982, but only 24 games. A couple games, 100, yeah. 133 at third. And, of course, like a lot of second basemen, he was brought up as a shortstop. Um, so in he wins it in 91. Um, he makes only four errors in the entire season. In 92, he doubles his errors to eight. And you're like, holy shit, that would be the worst year ever. But it's not. And errors are not a function of – a guy with no errors doesn't mean he's a good fielder. It could also mean he never gets to anything. Well, um, yeah, he gets Sandberg to had, range. Sandberg had – the first year he won the Gold Glove, he had 13 errors. In 85, mm-hmm. he had 12. 
in 87 and 88, he had 10 and 11. Right. So eight was not an outlier. That didn't mean he wasn't any good anymore. No, you're talking over 800 chances. He's got 800 grounders yeah. on average. It's kind of a wide range. And then he went an entire... He went an entire 162 games, right, without a throwing error? He did. Which is amazing for a second baseman, considering how many blind throws you make on double plays, that you just never throw one away. And it doesn't yeah. hurt to have Mark Grace over there if you do get offline. And, yeah, yeah, and I don't know if Durham was part of Durham was actually uh error in game five and 84, notwithstanding a very good first baseman also. So... Yeah, it was pretty much the last uh, the last real good season for Sandberg. I mean, so what happened in '93 when he was like this high highest one of the highest paid players in or Bonds had surpassed him by then. He uh, in the very first um, spring training game, Mike Jackson uh, yeah. threw two inside, broke his wrist, and he uh, he wasn't able. You know, he got a late start and you know a little bit out of sorts. And then '94, it just it was kind of it. '92 is really the last full season that we had to appreciate the greatness that was uh, Ryan Sandberg. <clears throat> so, so, you know, the, the uh, go ahead. I was going to say the other, maybe we're not ready to switch it, but the other big story in 1992 was the arrival of the guy with at the time, the worst haircut in uh, major league baseball, Sammy Sosa, Samuel Peralta. Yes. Coming over from um, the white Sox where, do you know what his claim to fame with the White Sox was? It's just a statistical anomaly is what it is. I recall him hitting two homers on opening day, and I only know that because the moment I stepped off of the elevator on the fourth floor in 4D in Grant North in uh, April of 91, that the Sox fan dudes that were in the room right off the elevator were almost waiting for me. Um, absolutely hit it, let me know right away that Sammy had hit two home runs for the Sox on opening day. I'm sure your fact is far more interesting. In, so the, the the season, well, two seasons before the trade, so 1990, Sammy, in his second year, first full year with the White Sox, was the only big leaguer, maybe ever, but it's certainly that year, to have double digits, doubles, triples, homers, Errors. stolen bases, caught stealings, <laughs> grounded into double plays, and errors. Now, that's a full season. You are really getting it done if you can get 10 or more of all of those things. Because it was the a big Panthers. deal in 84 when Sandberg had, you know, he had all the hit, the homers and the doubles and the stolen bases yeah. and 19 sometimes, triples. Sometimes people get a little too geeked out about the stats. Like, there's another one about, uh, well, the Sandberg one was a 300 batting average, tw- uh, 20 homers, 20 triples, 40 doubles, and 100 RBIs or something. He was one short on the triples and the homers of hitting this mark. Um, yeah, another one was at one point, Andre Dawson was so many guys to have had bet 300 with 300 steals or, you know, it's nice, but I may have shortchanged Sammy because another category had double digits in, which may be part of the set was assists. Yes, of course. As an outfielder, he had 14 assists and 13 errors. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He was aggressive. His plus minus was, he was plus one. That avoids Sammy. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was a wild child. You know, he was basically a um, a prospect with a lot of potential that ultimately panned out, and it panned out for the Cubs. But it took. He was always an exciting player. So ninety. So let's let's take a dive into nineteen ninety two, Sammy, because there's some fun things there. Um, it is his first season with the Cubs. He gets traded on the eve of the season uh, by Larry Himes, 
who himself was uh, somewhat of infatuated with uh, Sosa. He had traded, I can't believe I want to say this, Hall of Famer Harold Baines. Yeah. Uh, for so, which is ironic that Sammy's not a Hall of Famer and Baines is. Um, that's a whole topic for a whole nother uh, discussion. But uh, so said played a little bit for Texas. He was a hot prospect. Himes had him had him targeted, and he played a lot for the Sox. Had some success. Uh, had some serious failure. Really bottomed out, I think. Uh, in '91, George Bell was one of only three, uh, one of the, of the three big free agent signings that Jim Fry had signed in '91. Bell was actually the only one who was somewhat worth the deal and had a nice season. So it was a little bit of a surprise when the Cubs traded him for Sosa because Sosa was still really all potential. He had shown some flash, uh, and but you got to see the both like the good and the bad in that season. Um, you talked about the old style game, the second uh, home game of the season. I want to say uh, the game before on open, the home opener, I want to say that Sammy threw out a runner from center tagging up to send the game into extra innings. Uh, you know, he had that flair. The, the real high point was though, he was an everyday player. Um, he played center. I think he settled into right pretty quickly, but he got, he got hit. Um, I want to say, I can't remember the pitcher who hit him, uh, but he got it, or I don't know if he got hit. But he got uh, he spent some time on the DL. He was yeah. out for about a month. He only played the, sixty-seven games for the Cubs that year. For the whole season, yeah. and so yeah, he got he got injured sort of early, and then they uh, the Cubs sort of floundered. Uh, but somehow they were like alive in late July, and Sosa had just come off the DL, and Pittsburgh was coming to town, and the Pirates had won two consecutive uh, National League East divisions, and they would eventually win a third, but. Uh, the Cubs going into the series were 46 and 51. In fact, that I remember for reasons that I'll get into later. Um, and Sosa was back in the first game. Um, Maddox outdueled Drabeck. And, you know, like I said, the Cubs are about seven or eight games behind July, it's, uh, behind Pittsburgh. It's late July. Um, but Sosa, I want to say Sosa led off the series, the homer. He homered, the, I think he was batting leadoff. Uh, bottom of the first, the homers, and the Cubs held on. Jeff Robinson gets the save. The the next day, they blow. They end up blowing um, them out. I think Steve Bouchelle hit for the cycle. Oh, of course so he did. Right? And the Cubs are going for the sweep the next day. Sosa had sort of cooled off, though. Uh, and in this game, the Cubs are down. I want to say they're down 4 nothing. I think Castillo, Frank Castillo started, but they came back. They tied the game, uh, and it went to extras. And Sosa came up a, a couple of times in a huge situation to win the game, and he struck out. Uh, but then ultimately, uh, off of Stan Belinda in like the 14th inning or whatever, he uh, he went yard. Uh, the Cubs swept the series. They were only 49 and 51. But let me tell you, Andy, you might remember this. Cubs, uh, the Cubs, Cubdom was in Bedlam, and we were all going nuts. I think we're all guilty of it. It took the late great Mike Royko uh, of uh, you know who else <laughs> the very next day to take all of us to task. Uh, in a legendary article that I believe you can find the text from if you Google Mike Royko Cubs 4951-1992, uh, where he takes the Cubs to task, the Cubs fans to task for we were, we were going out of our mind. I remember calling. I was in Northern. It was in the, it was in the summer, but I was still working up there, calling my brother. Like this is incredible. We were we were still sort of like trying to relive that excitement from '84 and '89. It was too few and far between, and all of a sudden here's the Sammy Sosa that's just like kind of on fire, and the Cubs are gonna hunt down the pirates and then you read this article by Royko and god damn it if he wasn't right once again and it was just he put it in proper perspective you know you're, you guys are being idiots the cubs are 49 51 and sure enough um it, it faded what happened with him about a week later sosa was batting again at home i think against
Mets, Wally Whitehurst of the Mets. This is where he got injured by, by a pitch. Uh, Whitehurst, I believe, broke his wrist, pretty much knocked him out of the season. Cubs kind of faded out. But that, you know, to me, when I think of Sammy Sosa 92, like it was easy to sort of get attracted to the sort of electricity that he had. And then also, you know, see his see his flaws too. He was, you know, he was exciting, but you could see it 92. He obviously a different player later, but the, this, you know, the, the, the essence was still there. Yeah. Sammy, his approach to the game at the time was, um, Lou Holtz, when Jarius Jackson was the co- was the quarterback for Notre Dame, said that Jarius plays like he's trying to win the game for both teams at the same time. <laughs> and that was Sammy. It was, he, he was going to make something happen, whether it was good or bad. Um, now, as I, I missed part of your narration of the bottom of the 11th as I was looking it up. Did you point out that there was a runner on base when Sammy hit the home run? Um, and who it was? I did, and how he I, got I think, there? The game was tied. I, I would have no memory of that. Okay. I was blinded by the the Sosa bomb. What do you got for me? Okay, so uh, Stan Belinda okay, was in pitching. And yep. uh, Ray Sanchez led off, and he struck out looking, much to the chagrin of all the fans there. And so the Cubs obviously dealing with a uh, a very uh, – the bullpen was getting a little tired. Uh, Paul Ossemacher was allowed to hit for himself. Oh! And he walked on four pitches. Terrific. Uh, Stan Belinda, just to stop it, just to put it in perspective of uh, maybe the younger man, Stan Belinda was sort of like this, probably a token of heartbreak for Pirates fans. He was, they, they were trying to make him their closer. You know, the Pirates won three straight divisions and, uh, and they lost three straight LCS once to the Reds, twice to the Braves. One of their problems is besides Barry Bonds, not showing up in any of those three postseasons was they never really had a reliable closer. Um, and Belinda was kind of like their last great hope. Yep. And as we already have sort of gone over, he got um, Francisco Cabrera. He got, he, yep. And that was later on that season, yep. right? So, um, yeah, the pitchers yeah. that day for the Pirates were Bob Walk, who Pat Hughes, I'm sure, was somewhere um, in that Milwaukee still, talking about how you can't have a pitcher named Walk. Roger Mason, who blew the save, Denny Nagel out of the bullpen for an inning, and then Stan Belinda for two and a third. Trying to get three innings out of him and couldn't. For the Cubs that day, Frank Castillo only went called three, it. Only went three. Yep. Uh, Ken Rick Patterson hit a homer in that game too. Ken Patterson, okay. the, the gem in the uh, in the trade for George Bell. Yep. Two more innings out of Chuck McElroy. Gave up one man. hit and nothing else. Chuck. Jeff Robinson apparently pitched two innings for the Cubs that day. Jeff and then, had gotten the save on Monday. He might have been. And then the Paul Assmaker, as Harry would mm-hmm. uh, maybe not accidentally maybe. call him from time to time. Yeah. But that, that win pulled the Cubs to win three and a half games on the 29th of July. With a 49 and 51 record. Well, that doesn't matter. Royco. <laughs> You don't. There's no maximum or minimum number of games you got to win. You just got to win more than everybody else. But yes, I know. But yeah, he was right because this was not a good Cub team, and it was. And the, uh, I don't know what the pirate, how the Pirates finished, but they they easily won the division. They they did. They weren't sweating it out in July. Although it was at the trade deadline, so maybe it spurred them to action to get somebody. They would win their third straight. uh, And you know that was the end of it, though. That was their last hurrah before. 
they burped up again about 10 years ago. But you mentioned Ray Sanchez. I want to get this out of the way because I know it happened in 1992, mm-hmm. watching it in my, apart- my apartment in Stadium View in DeKalb. One of the, one of the um, great moments of Cub history. <laughs> Ray Sanchez, which, you, you know, um, sort of an ordinary player, but he'll always have a place in my heart when he, when he hung in there. The base is loaded in the tie game uh, in the home half of the last inning, whether it was the ninth or extras, I can't remember, but the fearsome Rob Dibble was on the mound, and Dibble threw a pitch a little too close inside, and Ray Sanchez just managed to uh, hang in there long enough to get the game-winning HBP. I actually thought that you were going to say this was the season where the guy hit the pop-up, and Harry goes, Sanchez, Uh he's never dropped one of these in his life, and then he dropped it. Um. Yes, that was Ray Sanchez, right? That Harry yep. is that the is that okay? He never he's never uh, dropped, and Harry laughed. He thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. It's like, well, and we gotta entertain I, ourselves I, somehow, Harry. I also have to bring this up now because I don't want to forget, and also it's probably going to be worthy of discussion because I just realized this happened in 1992, and uh, had I been more prepared, this would have been one of my five facts. But um, there was a game in against the Mets in June or July of 1992 when. Um, the Cubs were about 40 feet from winning a game until a sniper on the roof of the uh, Wrigley Field upper deck fired a bullet into Cal Daniels's right hamstring, causing uh, Daniels to crumple uh, into the ground and uh, fall short. Or at least that's what I always thought happened, is that a, a sniper took out Cal. All I know is that uh, Jose Vizcaino, the aforementioned Jose Vizcaino, hits ropes a double into the right field corner and good old Cal Daniels was chugging his hardest is coming around third. And, um, and I, I think he was shot, but he stumbled. There's a, um, it's out there. John Dooley was able to help me to find it a year ago on Twitter and somebody helped, um, help, help me convert it to a gift. So if I find it, I'll, I'll get it. But I, anybody that was alive back then, I wouldn't need to see it as a reminder because uh, never forget Cal Daniels. So do you know what Cal Daniels real first name is? It's not Calvin. It is not. It is his name. This is ridiculous. His name is Kalvaski Daniels. His he, dad named him is after is a that guy. A he's, in the cat skills? He named him after a guy he served with in the military, whose last name was Kalvaski. Couldn't you have named your kid after whatever the guy's first name was? Maybe it was Dan. Maybe it was Dan Daniels. It couldn't be Dan Daniels. So he named him Cal. His name is Kalvaski Daniels. How about that? And Cal, at one point was a hell of a player. But by the time the Cubs got him, he was not. Um, he had injuries. And I actually yes, he, had ter- he had terrible, lots of leg injuries. And I, it was a combination of that and, you know, the old Wrigley Field, the actual surface, had that weird slope to for water drainage purposes. And yes, it was. Cal was not they... the first guy who biffed it round in third base because all of a sudden you were running down a ditch. On your way, the, you're running Wait. forward, and the and the grass is you're the, the the earth is falling off to your right as you're running. Hold on a minute. This this I've never heard before. I I always do that for the longest time. Wrigley had some terrible irrigation and just uh, you the, know turf. So the Cubs are in the third base dugout, and I distinctly remember. Um, I think it was it was probably Dusty complaining that. When you're in, this was before. I don't know what year they even the surface out finally. Um, but when you're you were standing in the third base dugout, you could not see entire players' bodies on the field. You'd like only see their head 
because you were so much lower than they were the way the field sloped up away from you to get out onto the field. If you were sitting down either foul line or you're well, sitting down first. He said in the cup third. dugout, like you would, okay. like if you were third looking base. at Sammy in right field, you didn't see all of Sammy. You only saw like his head. Right. Because you were looking uphill at him. There was a lot of shit wrong with that. Yeah. There still is, but there's a lot less. Than okay. So I retract the sniper theory. Well, no, but it didn't happen every time. So, and Kel was a cub and he'd been a red. He'd played there enough. He should have probably figured that out. The same thing happened to the great Todd Pratt once. Do you remember that? Uh, I just remember He was Todd about Pratt to was... score the easiest run of his life to win the game for the Cubs. Just fell flat on his face. Got tagged out. I don't remember that one. So, okay. I, My, it's the only thing I remember is... about Todd Pratt. I know he went to play for the Phillies later, but I didn't give a shit. Mine is Kale Daniels, and I, I think it, it, there was some justification. for. Obviously, a team is not very good if you'll have uh, – uh, it comes down to a guy making it home in a game in late June, but I want to say that the Cubs were sort of, um, sort of, you know, doing okay, uh, kind of alive, maybe on a roll. And, and honestly, uh, I know maybe statisticians say there's no merit in this, but it kind of felt like the the type of loss that uh, I'm going to find it now as I'm scrolling. But the type of loss that really can uh, can sort of sink uh, a team or just you know spin them spin them in the other direction. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned the George yeah. Bell trade. Do you remember what one of the one of Jim Fry's uh, what was Fry? no was was Himes? But um, I don't even know why I brought up one of the reasons for the motivation to trade George Bell at the time that they did. Um, let's see here. Remember that he Let arrived me... a little late for spring training, and why? Uh, he had a gas station. Yes, right. He was running his yeah, gas station his in the gas Dominican, station. and you know, business was booming, and he couldn't. Uh, he wasn't sure okay. he needed an entire spring training. And the Cubs. So Himes was looking for an excuse to trade him because he wanted Sammy. When we talked about 1997 about Jaime Navarro, how he we got two good years out of him and he was terrible for the Sox. I will have to say, George Bell, we had one good year out of him, and he actually the Sox got one good year out of him. But then when they went to the division in 93, he had rendered himself useless. So there, I think he was just about checked out. So that adds up. Well, yeah, he really then, wasn't like he had no business being in the outfield. So him going to DH somewhere made perfect sense. And then part of the issue they had with the Sox was they also got Bo Jackson. So they had a guy with one leg and then right. they had George and he had to play one of those two in the outfield. Great roster construction by Ron Schuler. <laughs> Well, and that was the team, though, whose core is essentially built by Himes, and that was the same reason that the Cubs had pursued him. So if we just stop for a minute, to, uh, just to put it in the historical context, because last week in 1997, I kept using this term designed by mediocrity, which I characterized that as the years between beginning in 1992 uh, and running through uh, basically uh, 2000 and, and uh 2006 uh it was it was the probably the largest chunk of the tribune ownership but the first 10 years of tribune ownership from 82 until 91 they were in it to win it uh they were investing in the team they're investing in the farm system and sort of realized after jim fry overspent for danny jackson and dave smith and yes george bell that you know we don't have to you know uh and jim fry didn't have a farm system to show for it because he had burned dallas greens to the ground 
treatment company was like, let's be a little more cautious about this free agency thing because the ballpark's filling up anyway. And it was the it was the period of time when they really sort of leveraged, you know, the, with the the McDonough machine at 1060 West Addison, and they were going to generate a certain amount of revenue. As long as the team was somewhat mediocre and maybe would sometimes have a chance to compete. Well, 1992 is really kind of the first year of doing that. So they bring over Himes because, hey, this guy built the farm system yeah. uh, in the White Sox. And four years in a row, 87 through 1990, drafted Jack McDowell, who for a, at least a half a decade was one of the top five or six pitchers in the American League for sure. Uh, the next year, Robin Ventura was one of the finest third basemen in the American League, Hall of Famer Frank Thomas, and then Alex Fernandez, who was also a very good pitcher while he was healthy early on. All four were key contributors to the 93 team. Because Larry Himes was such an acerbic asshole, that was hard to get along with. Um, in spite of his, um, you know, his success in, in cultivating the farm system, was shown the door. Well, and you, after the '91 season, we also you talked about without talking without saying it. We talked about one of the reasons Himes got fired was he he traded Harold Baines, and Jerry never forgave him for it. So he was just okay. for he was just looking for a reason to can him, and then yeah, everybody thought Larry was an asshole. So it made it pretty easy to move another on thing, from him. An, another thing that might have helped engender that idea is I remember that at one point when he was and this is in the eighties, right, late eighties, where he banned alcohol in the clubhouse after the game, and I remember his Carlton Fisk's choice quote after was, <laughs> "What the hell are we going to do? Sit around, eat pizza, and drink Sprite." <laughs> So, yeah, the guy had a stick up his ass. He was not a – which would have been fine if he succeeded for the Cubs, and, and but he was an absolute failure. His draft, we mentioned Brooks Kieschnick last year. That was one of his draft picks. So he did not repeat the magic no. that he had had. However, his one legacy, which, if nothing else, really kind of helped propel this sort of uh, design by mediocrity, right? This sort of not only having a ballpark that's going to be somewhat full, you might be competitive, but having one or two or three player, marquee players, whether it's Sandberg or Grace or Sosa, that you can kind of rally around. So he did bring Sosa into the organization and didn't really give up a lot. And eventually Sosa became what he was. That's pretty much the only thing Larry Himes can hang his hat on. Well, and his Cubs. his two trades for Sosa were both worked out for the team because the the first trade, the Harold Baines trade, was Baines and Fred Manrique <laughs> to the Rangers <laughs> nice for call. Sammy and Wilson Alvarez, who threw a no hitter for the side, and he was in that rotation yes. in '93 with McDowell and Fernandez when they went to the playoffs, and then obviously the Cub trade, um, nineteen ninety one All Star. George Bell. Do you want to know what 1991 All-Star George Bell's numbers were for the Cubs? <laughs> Wait, we're talking 1992. Well, I know, but he gets traded in, after the 91 he season. A, he was a Cub All-Star. Uh, 285, 323, 468, 25 homers, and 86 RBIs. And he never took to hitting in Wrigley Field. Um, oh, I just lost okay. his home road splits. They were. He was a much better hitter on the road. Okay. Um, yeah, he I remember. also did was, not have a very good second half. Okay. So Neither I think the Cubs, Cubs by then were like, all right, this, uh, yeah. if someone will take him, um, we will gladly well, give him. It, and like I said, there was a shift in uh, – Fry was cooked. When, when those free agents and Bell did not flop, the team did, and a lot was hinging on Danny Jackson and Dave Smith, and there was nothing to show for the farm system, and it was uh, – it, it that was the end of the chapter. That was end of Tribune 1. Jim Fry, you're gone. Uh, Don Granesco would be sort of the, he was sort of like the co-GM, but clearly he was like this sort of Tribune, like Crane Kenny type of. Yeah. Don Dennis, Zimmer, Dennis loved Dennis it. Simons. 
Yes, right, right. Well, Zimmer got fired in '91. It, it, it drew the whole. It drew the whole. Basically, the whole the, the remnants of the Dallas Green. What was even left of it was basically closed shut after '91. It was like a new era, and they embarked on a 15-year run. Pretty much wrote it out until they sold the team to Sam Zell, where again they strive for the middle. And they might get hot or they might be awful. And 92 was kind of like the standard season. They got a white nondescript manager named Jim. Where did they finish in 92? They went probably like 77 and 84 or something, somewhere along those lines. It was so down the middle, it was almost perfectly executed. Uh, they were not in contention probably by Labor Day, but they were throughout the – they were until Cal Daniels got thrown out home. On July, the first day of July, 1992, because at that point, the Cubs would have been 500, would have crawled their way up to 500 uh, on July 1st. And uh, I think that uh, after that, they sort of went on a skid. So, yeah, they were 78 and 84. That's what they finished, which means we know what they were in 93. They had to be 84 and 78 because Jim Lefevre finished. (laughs) 162 and 162 in his which shows you what shows you what an idiot Larry Himes was and this is not to defend Jim Lefevre I did not think he was anything special as a manager but the Cubs did rally around him in September of 93 and finished 500 for the first time in a non-playoff season in over 20 years and most importantly and functionally he had been Larry Himes's first hire uh, as a GM, which, you know, you fire your first hire, uh, you're one step closer to being shown the door yourself. And uh, so in spite of the opposition to everybody, Larry Hodge just had to be an asshole. He fired Lefevre, and then things got worse, and then he was shown the door. And well, he hired the stuff. electric Jim Riggleman. No, Tom Treblehorn. Oh, that's right. Shit, you just said it. Yeah, there was a, oh, there God, was a that's space right. between the two, the two gyms. Oh, that's right, because... Well, um, 94 is special. We right. must save that. Right, because Riggleman got got hired during the strike, right? No, Riggleman did, would have, yeah. He, yeah, yeah, he yeah. got hired with no team. Hey, guys! <laughs> hey. Well, and then, and then the other thing I thought about, and I know this might be irrelevant if somebody ever listens to these in sequence, but since we talked about 97 last week and you pointed out that Brian McCoy, Brian McCray had been acquired like April 5th, uh, 95, I realized afterwards because the season didn't start till late April uh, in 95 because there was still the effects of the strike. They didn't play like 144 games that season and started later. And that's why Jim Riggleman <laughs> – well, you know, they started later, but you're right. You got hired. They didn't have a team. They're they're going to go into that season with strike break, uh, strike players. So in in '92, Mark Grace had a very Mark Grace season. He had 307, 380 on base, 430 slugging, 37 doubles, nine homers. Yeah. An excellent first base, but. He was. I always liked Grace. I think Cub fans over contend to overrate him out of nostalgia, maybe. But very good player, man. And he was he was kind of entering his peak. He was actually, if you look at his stat lines, he was coming off a couple of rough years. You know, he kind of burst onto the scene in '88, rookie of the year, runner up to Sable. '89, he actually out hit Will Clark in that LCS. He was but amazing think, in the playoffs that year. I, he was. It was fantastic. But like in around '90, '91, his numbers dropped off. I think he was going through a divorce to the uh, future Mrs. Ray Liotta, uh, and I think he was just hitting the Michelle. bars and. And wasn't able to, you know, kind of keep it within the lines, but he got his act together yeah, I think, he was by '92. Smoking three packs of Winston's a day, <laughs> and living with a radio producer from WGN. Dan, imagine Dan being Fulato, a just yep. hanging out, bringing Slump Busters home. And well, I'm a, part I'm of a, the, the things that uh, most endeared him to Cub fans, other than hitting lots of doubles and being a great defensive first baseman, were probably the things that kept him from actually 
becoming the player he should have been. Maybe, but it is baseball, right? I mean, would being any healthy, I mean, maybe as far as sleep deprivation, I don't know. Okay, so if we switch the two, if Sammy is just smoking, is just smoking and drinking, and Grace is doing steroids. Okay. What is what is sure. what is Mark Grayson opinion? Three ninety eight with eighty five <laughs> home runs. I mean, it turned a Mark McGuire, a you know very average, especially at that point of his career, was bad into a yeah. star again. Well, uh, and and you know the other thing is too that the Cubs are still playing about sixty uh, day games at home. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of very bad that night. I mean, you know, it's not a long uh, – now, there is some benefit because, like, they all have a nightlife. I'm sure ballplayers go out after games at night, and they could get and that could get dangerous because it gets late. But no, you're almost compelled to go out when you're done working at 5. <laughs> so, well, you know, I don't know. So, Trevor Bauer has been doing this annoying thing where to challenge himself. He's been pitching with one eye closed. Mm-hmm. Think about how many at-bats Grace took with one eye closed. <laughs> not on purpose. Just like, the old oh, Mickey, Jesus. Mickey man. Oh god. Yeah. Yeah. But now he he started to get his act. I think he still sort he 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 didn't give up the lifestyle. He just sort of I think got a got a handle on it yeah, or at least let it good at not it. affect not not not, not affect his ball <laughs> like, playing, Rod, like so. Rod Beck. You just right, you, know, you, can't. you get used to it and you can all of a sudden perform. Right, you can't pull fat, Rod Beck's uh, quote. But yeah, so '92, Grace had started to get his act together, and he was one of the you know finer uh, left-handed hitting hitters, I guess, through the decade. Um, so you mentioned a little bit, and I lived, I lived it too. Now I, I mentioned in a previous podcast that um, when I was joking about not knowing who the white that the White Sox existed until I got to college, it was only a slight exaggeration. But so I had a lot of friends. Well, I can see you're a, a fine connoisseur of podcasts because you're here at the Pointless Exercise Podcast. And I'm not sure which podcast you're listening to, although I, I probably could customize this commercial to all of them, but I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to give you a quick rundown of the current podcast lineup, PointlessExercise.com, to make sure you're not missing anything. First of all, there's the award-winning Cubs podcast that I've been doing for years. The lineup changes all the time, but you're unfortunately you're always stuck with me. This year, same guys are back from last year, Sam Fells from Deadspin and Kyle Reichert from uh, Wisconsin. And now he lives in Chicago. Then there's a couple of newish podcasts. There's Remember This Crap with Mike Donahue. If you haven't heard this, oh, you're in for a treat. We put Mike's encyclopedia encyclopedic memory for banal events in Chicago sports history, especially the Cubs and the Bears, to the test. We're in. Uh, we are going to try to hit every Cubs season between 1980 and 2011 at some point during this. So uh, tune in. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We we throw out a year and we just start remembering crap. And then, as if that's not enough, there's the movie deep dive podcast with actor comedian and our bear expert which has nothing to do with, with this podcast, uh, Mike Pusateri. Uh, where we pick some of our favorite movies, and we do exactly what it sounds like. We dig deep into it, we dig up sound clips, we talk about the cast, we talk about the directors, we talk about how the movie got made, and we talk about our favorite parts in the movies. So that's plenty of podcasts, and you only have to go to one place to find them. That's PointlessExercise.com. Yeah. 
at Northern who were White Sox fans. And so the, my first year there, they would go on about, oh, we love Sammy. And I would make fun of Sammy so like he wouldn't believe, you know, this wild, mm-hmm. undisciplined, throw the ball halfway up the backstop. And then all of a sudden, you know, at the end of spring training, 1992, he's mine. And I had to become the biggest Sammy Sosa defender of all time. And I did. <laughs> I embraced him with both arms. He was my guy now. It's like, you can't, especially with Sean getting hurt. That was all I had was Sammy. Yep. Ne- next one up. So I became a huge defender. And that the that, that game you referenced, my friend Neil, who was a Which big one? Sox fan, the Stan Belinda home run. Yep. We're in my car. He'd come up to visit. And we were headed up to Wisconsin to go drinking somewhere. And we're listening to it in the car. It was an after day game, afternoon game. Yeah. And Sammy hits the home run, and I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm was, giving we it. We were to all him. going nuts. Uh huh. Yeah. Fun with George Bell. Oh, and that's perfect. That. You were with him when it happened. Yes. We were the in the car listening yeah. to it. He's like, "Son of a bitch!" As soon as, yeah. as he could tell, you know, would that have oh, been? Be- would that have been it's Brenneman? The best uh, in ninety in ninety two, uh, it would have been Brenneman. He yeah. was there from ninety to ninety five. Yep. Yeah, Brendan would have called the walk off with Ronnie bellowing. Yep. I think Brendley was gone by then. So okay, yeah, yeah. Sammy, Sammy had a flair, man. He showed it then. He was a different player later on, but you know, like you said, he only played sixty-seven games. That team was uh, the you know they had some good players. Was Dawson still on the team? And yeah, he was right. Hawk. It was his last year as a Cub. Ninety-two. Yep. Moment of silence for Andre Dawson's career he as a had- Cub. He basically had the same year um, that George Bell had, had the year before. 277, 316, 456, 22 homers, 90 RBIs. It's not a bad year, but you know I don't know how many. He, only played, he played 143 games. A normal human with his knees probably would have played yep. 22 games. He played 143. <laughs> right. And that tells me that Sosa must have been their primary center fielder. Well, it wasn't because he, was, well, he missed so many games. The guy who oh, played, that's right. guy who played the yeah. most center field, Doug Desenzo. Ah, oh, see. Now yeah. this this is primo. The guys on this team. I mean, there are some beauties. Um, this was the end of Joe Girardi's first tour with the Cubs. He was a he, would, he, he was a charter member of yes, the Colorado he would be Rockies. Lost in the expansion draft. Oh no! To the but you know what? To Don Baylor's Rockies. Rick Wilkins was waiting in the wings with a thirty home yeah. run, forty RBI season. It came out of nowhere and then went right back to nowhere. Yes. yes. Yes, Ray Sanchez got the most starts at short, but Dunstan played 18 games and Vizcaino yeah. um, played 86 games of second base and shortstop. Yeah, we mentioned uh, Dunstan when we talked about 1997. And I, I made it one of my five facts that he was their opening day shortstop still, and then that's when he must have gotten hurt that early car on. Seat. Picking up the car seat. Fucking Sean and Jr. Was, and was out for a whopping 18 months and really altered his career. I mean, yeah. So another reason to trade George Bell was the hot shot prospect who was going to take over left field for the next Wait, 10 years. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. In 1992? Yep. Ke- Kevin Roberson? No. Son of a former big leaguer. S- nice, smooth, left-handed swing. That's about all he had. Son of a former big leaguer, left-handed swing. I'm going to have to look. Just tell me. Derek May. Oh, yeah. It was Derek May's finest season as a Cub in 92. He won a game uh, by hitting like a three-run tie-breaking homer either in the bottom of the eighth or something off of Dennis Martinez of the Dodgers. 
um, at yeah. Wrigley Field. Derek May is the guy is the kind of guy who a scout would see and just drool over because he was yep. he was tall, kind of lanky, had yep. this had this beautiful swing. He really had a great swing, and he, he looked like a good bumper. He could never hit for power, ever. He had I eight guess homers. not. He had eight homers that year. And that I'm fairly sure, sir. That's his best with eleven season. doubles. Okay, nineteen Line extra drive. base hits in 124 games. 124 playing left field. Okay, that's not going to work. Well, he did power one out against Denny Martinez, and for a brief while, just like I did with Chuck McElroy, boy, I had some hope for Derek May. Who was his father? Was it Carlos or Lee? There's a handful of Mays. And Dave. Not all of them are related. They see neither Carlos or any brothers. Okay. Dave May, a uh, former, um, he was an Oriole, a Brewer, a Brave, a Ranger. He played wow. 12 years in the big leagues, uh, hit 251. He hit more homers than his kid, 96 homers. I think he did. I think he hit more than Derek did. Okay. Derek hung around, I want to say, at about 96, 97. With other, not with the Cubs. I think he was gone probably yeah, Derek played. 94. Derek played 10 years, played the Cubs, the Brewers, the Astros, and then short stints with the Phillies, Expos, and Orioles. Hit 52 home runs in 10 years. Got it. 6'4", 52 home runs. <laughs> hit Line the ball in the air. It. He hadn't heard a launch angle. If, it, if the Cubs had got a hold of him now in the hit lab, he's 30 homers a, he's 30 homers a year. Oh, no doubt. Just born, you know, born 20 years too soon. Too late. <laughs> too soon? Too soon. He's only four years older than me, so I probably should stop talking about ripping out of. Yeah, probably still made enough. I also too, was has born a twenty years too soon. <laughs> yeah, it was the the last vestiges of some of the uh, some of our favorite ninety eight Cubs. Luis Salazar was still around. Eighty nine Cubs, you mean? Eighty nine. Oh, I say eighty nine. Dwight Smith. Yeah, you know, so games before he went if, off to the Braves I, and actually um, carved out a nice niche as an extra well, outfielder. Yeah, if I could say a word about Dwight Smith, and I obviously I'll be granted plenty of opportunity uh, when those years yes, come up. Right, but, he will dominate. The, they'll have a big part of the 98. God, yeah, 89. I got to love Dwight 89, Smith. Keep saying that. You just get him transposed. It's cool. I love Dwight Smith in 89. Uh, he was the runner up, of course, rookie, your third straight runner, or third straight second straight runner-up uh, after Grace. Uh, and, of course, his teammate was the Rookie of the Year. Uh, I always – I mean, Walton had a great season, but I just loved Smith's bat. He was a really beautiful left-handed swing. Uh, he was an absolute – and I didn't know it at the time, but I'd get to see it in seasons like 92 and 93 when I swear he got a lot of starts in center, if you can believe that. Uh, just a very atrocious outfielder. Yeah, he was terrible. super fast, super fast, but he couldn't run the bases, so it was rendered useless. He would run into outs. Uh, so his speed was moot. It didn't help him with his defense. Just a great hitter. And you're right. The Braves kind of fashioned him into uh, just a lefty bat off the bench because he always had a nice swing. Uh, another fun fact about Dwight Smith, of course, were his pipes. Yes. And his ability to sing the national anthem uh, before the Wrigley Field audience uh, before games. So, and a fun fact about Dwight Smith that I always thought was bullshit, but apparently it's true. At, And I don't know if the A's kept it or not. At Ho-Ho Cam... The main field was called Dwight Patterson Field, named after some donor, I think, who gave them money. One of the minor league fields was Dwight Smith Field, and it really was named after him. 
And I don't know if they thought it was funny because he had Dwight. I'm sure at some point, like, oh, it's Dwight Patterson Field of River. This one's Dwight Smith Field of River for the minor leaguers. But yeah. there was there was an actual field at Hohokam, and I don't know if it still is or not, because Hohokam's still a thing. It's just the Cubs just aren't there anymore. The A's have it, yeah. yeah. Dwight Smith Field. So now there's huh. two guys that we would be remiss if we did not talk about. One of them, of course, was this was uh, this was prime Hector Villanueva back in oh. catcher territory. Yeah, Hector had a bad year in 92. He actually broke out in 91. Yeah, so maybe we, we saved the bulk of that for 91. Yes, our, yes, but, our. But one guy who cannot escape, because we'll never have any other chance to talk about him, Gary Scott. Yep. All right, let's do this. Gary Scott. He actually played who... more. He played more in both 91 and 92 than I uh Remote. Well, I'm sure he didn't play more than 40 games at the beginning of either season no. and probably played 30 on each end at least or something. Well, he only um, played 67 total, but I didn't know that he played. I didn't know he played that many games total for the Cubs. So the so Gary Scott was a two-time opening day starter at third base. And the funny thing is, and we'll, we didn't even hardly mention his name when we talked about 1997, but like the same thing happened five years later when Kevin Ory came up two years in a row. Was He was their answer at third base. So Gary Scott was the first version. Kevin Ory was the second. But in the first version uh, was the year before in 91. He gets the job out of spring training. And now 91, the Cubs had high hopes. There's, a, you know, We'll talk about it when we talk about the season. But, you know, when you go around the field, you had some good players. You had Grace, you had Sandberg, you had Dunstan before his injury. We didn't know that, you know, Jerome Walton was truly eating himself out of the league. Dawson was still in his prime. Third base, big mystery. But, you know, with all these veterans around, maybe you could bring this kid along. He had a big spring. He was terrible. But didn't stop them from trying again in 92. My lasting Gary Scott memory was a game that you can easily find on YouTube because I saw it a couple of years ago was when he came to bat in a weeknight game at Wrigley Field early season, April, maybe May, against the Phillies. Oh, I can, bases, I can tell you. the bases were loaded. It <laughs> was and, April. And this, it's April 20th. You know the date? You know the 19, date? I have the game pulled up. Uh, Paul Abbott, who I only know that name because of this game. I think Kyle. He must have. Kyle Abbott. Sorry, Kyle Paul Abbott. was another pitcher who I think, if memory serves, justifiably walked off the mound and into Lake Michigan after the game because he could not put Gary Scott away. Gary Scott, weakening Gary Scott, base loaded situation. Kyle Abbott trying to, retire, trying to get rid of him. Gary Scott fouls off like 15 pitches before he. I don't know if he put the grand slam into the basket or what, but I've, clearly no. it was Gary Scott's career highlight. No, he crushed it, did he? Okay, so here we go. So it was the Cubs were ahead one nothing because Kyle Abbott he actually gave up two home runs in this game. I don't know which one bothered him more. The first home run gave up to Greg Maddox. So the Cubs have a one nothing <laughs> lead in the fourth, and Mark Gray starts off with a single. Sandberg flies out to center. Hector strikes out looking. So he's about to get out of it. Um, with Luis Salazar up, there was a wild pitch. Grace goes to second. He ends up walking Salazar mm-hmm. in an eight-pitch at bat. Then he walks Doug DeCenzo on four pitches. But, <laughs> it was a tiny strike zone. I mean, but big deal, because here's Gary Scott, who right. came into the game hitting, oh-something. because Goodness. Right-handed hitter. Um, even <laughs> after his grand slam, he was hitting 121. So it was okay. his batting average was not. Well, I'm good. sure. I'm sure his OPS blew up, but <laughs> it was a 13 pitch at bat. There it is. 
And it says here, now I don't know, maybe the baseball reference guy being generous, line drive to deep left field. I'll give it to Grace him. Grace scores, Salazar scores, Desenzo scores, Scott scores. Cubs are up. Five, yep. nothing. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, just another exciting thing that happened in 1992. They would go on to win 8-3. to three. Thanks well, to RBIs from Hector Villanueva and Luis Salazar late in the game, and one of uh, one of uh, the twenty victories that Greg Maddox would have in his final season. The one Hector Villanueva did one thing that season. It was a game I was at, and might have been the only game I was at because I was in DeKalb year round that year. I ran into my cousin who lives in DeKalb, and he's the guy that's had the season tickets that I been sitting in. He's had him since 85. I just ran into him at the American National Bank of DeKalb County on 4th Street, and he had these tickets on him and just gave them to me. And uh, at the time, they were five seats, and we were working at the uh, at the pistol. Uh, so Oleg was one of the guys that I was working with, another guy I worked with. Somebody had to have a car. We all you know, had a road trip into the city, and it was right after the Bulls had beaten the Blazers. You can probably find it. Uh, and the Cubs, uh, it was, it might've been Maddox and Tewksbury, but it was Tewksbury. We mentioned Tewksbury last week. He was sort of in his prime, his Renaissance with the Cardinals, uh, pitching well. And Villanueva was having a terrible year, but it was 1992. I was 20, but one of our buddies had just turned 21 and we're, he was a big Cubs fan and he was ragging on Villanueva because he was having a bad year. And I said, Hector's going to hit one out here. And he had a three run bomb <laughs> off of Tewksbury. And, uh, of course, we were new to drinking at the park, or relatively, at least for a couple of years. And so Ron uh, felt obligated to buy me a beer. So it's probably the first beer somebody bought me at Wrigley Field, thanks to Hector Villanova. Thanks to Hector. Yeah. Yeah, so coming into that game uh, where he hit the Grand Slam, Gary Scott's slash line. This is a beaut. 103 batting average, 161 on base percentage, 103 slugging. Wow. Wow. He had an OPS of 265 before he hit the grand slam of Kyle Abbott. I bet you his teammate Frank Castillo had a higher OPS. It's hard to have a lower OPS. than. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another one that got wrong. You know, by then the Jim Fry farm system was just belching out like whatever crap. I mean, there was nothing. I mean, they, yeah, drafted he, nothing. He, he fired Go- Gordon Goldsberry because yep. he was a Dallas guy. And then the farm system. He, do you know who the farm director was in 1992 for the Cubs? Was it Al Goldis? It was Bill Herford. Remember that I don't was. even know who that is. Yeah, I don't even know who that about is. about right. Uh, the, the talent reflected the great Bill yeah. Herford. Yeah. Jim Fry strangled the last remnants of vibrancy that Green had carefully uh, cultivated. And then Jerry Larry Himes came in. And ushering in the the new blueprint and uh, was still showing the door because he was such an ass. It was when they found Andy McPhail, they found the perfect guy to run their mediocrity yeah. by design. That was tailor made. Uh, do you know the Cubs had three pitchers win uh, double have double digit wins that year? Do you know who the three were? Yes, I do. Maddox won the Cy Young and sort of as a rising tide carries all boats, seemed to elevate Mike Morgan yep. to his career year. I want to say Morgan was sixteen and eight, yep. and I believe the young and all. Already in our two episodes, Frank Castillo. Yeah, Frank's has, uh, dominating the podcast so far. He is the crap. I know. He's the crap we're remembering. <laughs> and long after he's dead, he uh, Castillo debuted in '91, I believe. But uh, yeah, he broke through. He had a nice season in '92. Part of the reason that they were, you know, nominally alive um, 
you know, and they were, like we said, late July, there was some pennant fever. So the list we not forget. Cubs won the Cubs. Seventeen guys pitched for the Cubs that year. We just named those three that won ten or more games. How yep. many guys do you think won five or more games? How many? How many in guys? A, in addition to the three we have, how many well, other guys won at least five games? Out I'm of, guessing you're fishing of, for low answers. I'm going to say two. Out of Fourteen. Am I, too, am I too high with two? Yes, it was one. Sean Bosky was five and eleven. Danny Jackson four and nine. And then the other only other four game winner, um, hot shot youngster Mike Harkey. 4-0 in seven starts. Whoa! Two years removed from being the third straight Cub to uh, finish as uh, runner of the year, runner-up uh, uh, runner, runner up for rookie of the year. 4-0 with a 189 ERA. So Danny Jackson was traded in July when he finally started winning games. He went like 1-6 his first year, and his, the first year of a big deal, and then he was finally started winning some games, and the, the Cub, Larry Hymas peddled him for Steve Bouchel, who's basically settled into the what any kid that grew up in the 90s would think of as the Cubs' third baseman. Well, yeah, with that curly blonde mullet. <laughs> and, you know, I, I started getting confused around 95, 96 when we had Judd Bushler uh, with the Bulls. And uh, Steve Bouchel, Judd Bushler, just trying to keep the name straight, just B-U-E-C-H. Yeah, and that was but, a yeah. straight-up one-for-one trade. Danny Jackson for Steve Bouchel. And, you know, Good Pittsburgh Lord. themselves had acquired Bouchel to trade deadline in 91 from Texas to bolster their uh, – their their run. I remember thinking the Cubs should try to get that Bouchelle, and they eventually did, but it was too little, too late. He was, you know, a guy, but he was probably probably had more starts at third base in the nineties than any Cub. So, uh, Doug Strange played for the ninety two Cubs. I remember Doug Strange. He had wow. a robust one sixty. He would go on to play for the Rangers. Trying Alex to make us forget Arias, remember him? He hit two ninety three for the Cubs in ninety in ninety nine at bats. Wow. Okay. Good for Alex. Managed to have a higher on-base average than slugging. So, uh, good job. He had he did it six doubles. Gary Scott, of course. Uh, Jerome Walton uh, did not go out with a bang. No. At one twenty-seven for the Cubs. Yeah. Only fifty-five at bats. He got. Then did he go to the Reds? Is that where he ended up? He ended. He ended up with Atlanta with Dwight Smith in ninety-five. I thought I could be wrong, but. I do remember that uh, at one of the Cub convention gatherings at, at Shitty OKs, uh, that both uh, both Dwight and Jerome had a booth. I got a fist bump from from Dwight. I don't know what year that would have been during the Cubs convention. Yeah, Jerome would go on to he survived the whole season. I mean, he didn't play much. He went, went free agent signed with the Angels, then the Reds, oh, okay. then the Braves, then the Orioles. He did show up with the Braves, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if it's unfair, but I, I just remember the impression at the time was that he kind of ate himself out of the league. He was rookie of the year in 1989. I think he won a gold glove. He had a 30-game hitting streak. Yeah. I mean, the Cubs, we talk, we, we talked about it tonight, how you know, the Cubs have a, had a black hole for a long time at third base, but center field's been more laughable. They actually had a rookie of the year center fielder in that time, and two years after that, he was gone. Three years, I should say. And the, Sean uh, Bosky. A huge, huge trade in 1992. Uh, they traded Sed Landrum to the Brewers for Jeff Kunkel. Huge trade. Still, I still, everybody remembers where they were on July 7th when the Cubs traded for uh, Jeff Kunkel. I do remember Sed Landrum. I want to say he wore number 28, but I could be wrong. He was a fleet-footed fella. Sed. Yeah, and then all of our, many of our favorites were in the bull, were in that bullpen. Bob Scanlon. Well, yeah, just uh, to put one year. more observ- 
Oh, go ahead. Just to put one more observation on on the season itself, because we kind of talked about, well, you know, the Cubs are kind of in contention, and even if we overrated that before Mike Ryko slapped us down, and uh, like what drove them out? What I remember was that they didn't have a closer. Like I said, Jeff Robinson was taking a shot at it. Chuck McElroy, our guy, early in the season. I don't remember what happened if he just became ineffective or, or hurt, but it was the other guy they got from Mitch Williams, Bob Scanlon, who Riggleman or I'm sorry, Lefevre was uh, giving a shot is the closer down sort of down the stretch when the Cubs were still mathematically alive. He, it's one of those things where, you know, the guy saves a couple games and you're like, Hey, here's our answer. Right. And then you go into a game and it gets close. And he blows it. And then he blows like two more. And he's like, oh, you know, it's, you know, and they're all backbreaking games because they're in August and September. So I'm sure if you look, you'll see Scanlon, you know, probably had about three or four blown saves in August and September. And they were, you know, they were sort of big game. The Cubs are not a real contender. I know I'm not, you know, harboring any illusions, but like I said, mediocrity about design. This was one of the years where they weren't that things didn't go sideways. Things went, you know, not all correct, but they were sort of in contention. And uh, Bob Scanlon and his absolute clothesline, straight as an arrow fastball, mm-hmm. uh, was a, unable to secure the deal for him. So a uh, another great moment in in Cubs history really happened uh, that July when. Now, if I if I mention a Cub pitcher from that era and and ears, who, oh. do, you, who do you think? Yeah, Jim Bollinger hitting a home run in his first major league uh, uh, at bat at bat. Wait, now, played appearance, not maybe. just the game. He his first at bat coming out of the play, bullpen, play the nonetheless. Yeah, which you know, and then three years later, here's their opening day starter in '95, and he was. That's right, he, Jim Bollinger. The, the game I talked to, where Hector Villanueva hit a homer off of Bob Tewksbury right after the Bulls beat the Trailblazers uh, in six games. Um, Bollinger was like the pitcher or player of the week right around then. He had like five or six saves in a stretch. You can look that up uh, if you had the chance. Um, in in '92, first couple weeks of June. You look shortly after he so he gets called up, hits a home run in a weird doubleheader makeup rain delay in St. Louis, and then within a week the guy's saving games. So the guy with the big Dumbo airs was going to be again, you know, if you want to point to why the team really, you know, on a micro level, are they no good? They didn't really have a a closer that was able to hold on to it because obviously Bullinger wasn't able to continue, even though I'm pretty sure he was player or pitcher of the week one of those times. So his and his home run was no joke. So he comes into a game, into a scoreless game, to pitch in the fifth, and he leads off the top of the sixth off of the great, I know, Real Cormier. Cormier, and hits a home run to deep left field to give the Cubs a one to nothing lead. They would it was cl- a bomb. They would cling to that lead uh, until he gave it back. Oh, just in the bottom of the sixth on a double to future Cub. <laughs> Todd Zeal. Um, the Cubs go into extra innings, and uh, they take Juan Augusto to the woodshed in the 13th. Oh, former White Sox Juan Augusto. Uh, he gives up RBI hits in cons- consecutively to Jose Vizcaino, Ryan Sandberg, Andre Dawson, and Mark Grace. And the Cubs win the game 5-1. to one. Take so that, without Lewis. Bollinger's homer, they lose that game. So oh, yeah, go yeah. Oh. yeah, but he's the answer to uh, uh, lots of trivia questions. As to, for the longest time, who was the last Cub to hit a home run in his first at bat? And um, I, is was Wilson the next guy to do it? 
Or was there somebody well, in between? Uh, Solaire did. Jorge did too. His first at bat. Yeah, off of uh, who was that Lemonhead? He pitched for the Sox. Is a re- Mike Leak, I think. Um, and Javi Hilmer his first game, but not his first at bat. Yep. Yeah, all the all the young guys made a splash in their first uh, game, except, except for, for Chris ironic, Bryant. Ironically, right? He went forever before hitting Homer. And also, I think um, the great James Shields. Uh, who proved his worth to the point where uh, the White Sox had to trade uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. for him. I think struck him out three times in his first major league game. Uh, first cup, first it, home game. It may have been three, it may have been four. It may have gotten a sombrero. And then the next time he was 0-2 his first time up, coaxed a walk. And yeah, I believe he also, in his very first game as, a, as a pro for the Cubs in Eugene, Oregon, Bryant struck out. He might have struck out five times in his first game. Oh. It's like, oh, the guy's a bust. <laughs> what the hell are we doing? And he got a little better after that. So, who? I wonder who struck out the most on the '92 Cubs. Oh, it would have been so. It would have been Sosa had he uh, stayed healthy, no doubt. Um, and I'm gonna. You know, Sandberg was actually a high strikeout guy. He played a lot of. You know, he was always healthy. Um, the 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 leading strikeouter for the Cubs that year struck out 73 times. So not that much. It's pretty because, modest. It's because Sammy only played. Um, and it was still Sammy? It was not Sammy, but Sammy was close. Sammy was third. Oh. <laughs> Sammy struck out 63 times in 67 games. 67 games? games. <laughs> it was Sandberg with 73. Dawson struck out yeah. 70 times. Um, yeah. Rick Wilkins, uh, pretty much very Sammy-esque, 53 strikeouts in 274 plate appearances. Yep, yep. Bouchelle didn't even play the whole year for them. And he struck out 44 times in 65 games. Yes, but he also hit for the cycle. So. But then you got to go way down to ninth, and you get Mark Grace. Yeah. 36 strikeouts, 72 walks. Wow. Playing every damn day. That's pretty <laughs> he good. He walked twice as much as he struck out. 689 yeah. plate appearances. Yeah. Yeah. You know, individually, there's some good players on that team. When you, when you look at it, Dawson was old. Like I said, it was Sandberg's last full complete season. Grace had sort of, you know, bounced back. Uh, Sosa was mostly just promise. Dunson got hurt. I don't know. I mean, they were mediocre, but they weren't terrible. And Wait, uh, we were in our 20s. So yeah, you talked about the lot. uncertainty at closer. While they only had um, four pitchers with 10 or more, with five or more wins, <laughs> they, uh, it's just amazing. They had. They had four guys who had at least six saves. Wow. So can you name so, them? I believe Bullinger, we've, we've mentioned every one of them yeah. so far. Bullinger, McElroy, Scanlon? Yep, and one more. Um, holy moly, but he's already been mentioned. Yep. Think Wouldn't have been. Think droopy left-hander. Oh, Ossenmacher. Paul Ossenmacher. He had eight. Uh, okay. Yep. Scanlon, hey, had, Scanlon led the team with 14. Bollinger had seven, McElroy six, okay. and Osmond yeah. eight. So, yeah, that was my memory is correct. Scanlon, Scanlon was basically the guy they rode down the stretch. and he. he Why didn't he they just him. let Jesse Hollins do it? Remember Jesse Hollins? Jeff Hartsock. <laughs> Wait, Jesse Hollins got made it to the bit. He got called up. He was on that team. He was 22 I, years I never, old. He, he, I, thought, he, I had no idea, dude. I always – and I followed the Cubs closely. I always thought he was a guy I read about in the minors, and he pissed off Larry Himes or something. I, I – Wow, Jesse Hollins. And I can't remember. Jeff Robinson pitched in 49 games, and I, honest to God, didn't remember 
any of that. Do you remember Jeff Robinson? He used no. to be a Pittsburgh Pirate. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I remember him a, as a giant. Blonde-haired dude. Yeah, somehow, like I said, I, we referenced that epic uh, Pittsburgh series that we all inflated uh, in late July that began with Maddox outdueling Drabeck. I remember Jeff Robinson came on for his first save of the season. Yeah, he had a very serviceable year. He yeah. had a three. He had a well. I, bullpen ERAs are always a little, ugh, but he had a three ERA, three on the dot. He, he only had yeah. seventy six hits in seventy eight innings. He had ERA plus of one hundred and twenty one, and uh, he was so uh, excited about it that he retired. <laughs> he never pitched again. He's like, ah, fuck it, I'm done. How old was he? Thirty one. So we, we both remember him from the Giants. Mean, yeah, I wonder if he got hurt. Uh, I wonder. He re-signed for ninety three, but then didn't. And maybe he got. I don't know if he got cut. Could have gotten training, cut. He just said, ah, I don't want to pitch for you. Oh, guys. and then one last thing we already met, but I saw somebody make reference today that it was the 1992 spring training uh, when the Cubs cut Moyer and offered him a coaching job, supposedly. Uh, he said, no, thanks. And then still, it still took him a few years to reappear. Right. It's a little bit disingenuous it when is. you rag on Jim Fry for trading um, uh, Moyer and Palmero, two arguable, you know, two big stack compilers for, you know, Mitch Williams and, and whatever else they got because uh, Moyer did nothing for Texas, was basically pitched himself out of baseball and refound himself. But uh, he did come back to the Cubs in 92 and couldn't make the team. Yeah, he didn't pitch. Moyer only only made seven starts in '91 for the Cardinals. It was 0 and 5 with a 5.74. Didn't pitch at all in '92, and that's when he like reinvented himself and he went to the Orioles yeah. and yeah. started. Well, he won 12 games. Um, started turning. Was not good in '94. That was you know one of the that was the strike the go home strike early year. year. Yeah. He was only he only he had a 4.7 ERA. Um, so really, the Orioles are probably the team that looks at it and says. The hell did we give give him up for because the heat he pitched for them in '95 left and then split time in '96 between the Red Sox and the Mariners where he really you know became Jay wow. uh-huh. but he was that year '96 he was 13 and three yeah yeah and then he would then he won 17 15 14 13 20 yeah. 13 and 21 over the next yeah. 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, well, he came up with Maddox in '86. Uh, I, I, because I was an idiot, I thought Moyer was better because he had a better one-loss record. He was like, you know, 11 and seven, and Maddox was six and 14. And I read some Jerome Holtzman article when he's interviewing Big Dick Pohl, uh, Cubs pitching coach, and Pohl was saying that Maddox is going to be a future Hall of Famer, and I, or like he was saying Maddox is the guy that's going to be great. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about, Dick Pohl? Jamie Moyer's the guy. But they were right, obviously. Even when Maddox was struggling. Jamie Moyer led his league, depending on which where team he was on, in stats three different times. One of them for the Cubs. Do you know in 1987 what he, what he did more of than any other National League pitcher that year? I'm going to guess uh, home runs. Nope. He gave up the most runs in the National League, 114. Okay. He had a 5'10 yeah, ERA. In 96, yeah. he led the American League with an 813 uh, winning percentage. Wow. But then okay. in 2004, he this is a lot. He led the American League. He gave up 44 homers. Sure. Didn't Burt Blylevin give up? He gave up 50 in a season once, right? Blylevin, did he hit 50? He set the record in the 80s. Has it never been broken? I don't know. I think Steve Draxel gave up more than 50 that one year just to, uh, just to mark Piss me Blylevin. off. Yeah, Blylevin in 1986. Led the American League in innings pitched with 271 and two thirds, and home runs with 50. 
he returned the next season to give up 46. Wow. And in those two seasons, he was uh, 32 and 26 with a 4.01 ERA. So it's impressive he still holds the single season. He obviously must hold the double season, but the fact this was pre any juice balls, yeah. uh, steroids, all that other stuff. And now that the, the numbers have sort of been suppressed a little bit, you know, good old Burt will be holding on to that mark for a good while, I'm, I'm thinking. So, yeah, the two like weird stats I was, was that Jim Palmer never gave up a grand slam, and Burt Blyland gave up 50 oh. homers in a season. I'm going to give you one, too, then. You said Grand Slam. Sammy Sosa never hit a Grand Slam at Wrigley Field. He also only hit two for the Cubs ever, right? And they were in back-to-back games? No, he ended up hitting about seven or eight. Oh, he hit, he well, hits, yeah. He hit, right. yeah. But his first two. He, like, he yes, had the, he had the longest beats. stretch before he hit one. Yes. And then yes. hit one the very next day. He had almost set the mark for, like, most games and Where home runs. Where was the first one? The second one was in Arizona. They're both in Arizona. Oh, so back-to-back games sure. in Arizona. I'm pretty sure. And then he hit a third one in San Diego in September, and uh, he ended up hitting about seven or eight. They're all on the road because every time his bases would get loaded, everybody's going to stand up. It put the pressure on him, and Sammy, Sammy was showing Swing him. at anything. He's going to swing the sh- – you know, just squeeze the hell out of the bat and never do it. So that's it. All right. So Well, that's we your 1992 Cubs. I, yeah, I, th- I feel good about that. I yeah, it was we, funny uh, because I was, I was so confident about the Gary Scott – I'm like, oh, we got to talk about Gary Scott. This was when he hit the Grand Slam. And then I pulled the stats. I'm like, oh, shit. What if he hit it in 91? But he didn't hit it in 91. Uh, yeah, no. I knew it was 92. I was in my apartment. That's why I was shocked to see that he'd played in 31 games the year before. I knew he'd been up to start the season. I thought they cut bait really fast then. And I knew that the 92, it was, all right, this is it, buddy. You're, right. You're, this is your last chance. Right. They gave and him he, probably it, an extra 10 games just because. And then it and was he like, performed, all right, we've got to and I got to think he performed worse because those numbers you pulled were from '92, I believe. So, well, let's let's we can finish with this. Uh, it's two seasons yes. of excellence, really. Yeah, yeah. it's almost yeah. It's like I don't want to say that I could duplicate what a major leaguer did, but I think in 1991 and 1992, I think I might have come close. Um, Depends so those, on if you're willing to lean into one like right. Ray Sanchez did with Rob Dibble. Yeah, I'm Rudy Stein from the original Bad News Bears. I'll just I'll lean into anything. <laughs> Um, so in two seasons, he played 67 total games and he hit 160 with a 250 on base, eh, Corey Patterson-esque, and a 240 slugging percentage. He had 42 total bases in 67 games. That, kids, if you're, if you wonder, that's really bad. Wow. He was a second round draft pick out of, do you know where he went to school? When he went to college, yes, Villanova. Uh, Villanova. Villanova. I just I remember that. Him and Matt Caesar, the greatest players in Villanova uh, history. Oh, that's right. <laughs> as far as anybody knows. All right. Well, let's play this game then. Um, who got drafted after Gary Scott? What oh, year? Here's a good one. This was uh, 1989. Um, well, I, I'm pretty sure Earl Cunningham got drafted before him, um, as did Frank Thomas. Well, was he a first round pick? No, he's second round pick. So it's, this is harder, but good there's some right. good there's some good names on here. There is the father of a recent National League Most Valuable Player. Father of a got recent drafted six spots after Gary Scott. He had a decent career for himself. Uh, no, most actually not decent. He was okay. He was he was bad, uh, but he played for amongst other teams the Yankees. He was a shortstop and his mostly son, a his utility own. guy. Yes, and his son plays for the Dodgers. 
Oh, Bellinger. Yes, Clay Bellinger no, got yeah. picked just behind him. Andy Fox got picked right behind him, future big leaguer. Oh, Andy Fox. Uh, and that's wow. about Yeah, that's about it. It's just the two. Let's okay. The, let's see what the Cubs took in the first round. Let's see, let's see who Jim Fry was burning the system down to the ground with. Oh, yes. This was the – oh, this – so this is uh, – oh, there's some Cubs on this list, though. Just not guys that got um, – so Asked by the Cubs? Number one overall, Ben McDonald for the Okay, Orioles. 1989, okay. Future Cub, the number two pick in the whole draft. Todd Van Pop, no. Tyler Houston. Wow, what a buster. Who drafted him, Atlanta? Yep, the Barbs. Okay. Then Roger Salkel, Jeff Jackson, who didn't ever make it to the big leagues. Donald Harris, yeah. who might as well not have. And then Paul Coleman. And then some guy – that sure. Whatever happened to him, he does testosterone commercials now. Frank Thomas, the seventh pick, followed by Cub Immortal Earl, yes. Earl Cunningham. So, so that was two years in a row. The Cubs went one year. They went right before the Sox because yes. the year yeah. before the, is when they the took Frank Thomas uh, one. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't control right. who gets but, picked before. But passing you. on Ventura right. for uh, Ty Griffin, Rob Ventura. Ty that's the one that hurts. Oh. oh, here to bring it full circle. Guess who got picked after Earl Cunningham? Gary Scott's favorite pitcher. No, oh, Kyle, yeah, Abbott? Kyle Abbott. Kyle Abbott. Oh, terrific. Terrific. Uh, Charles Johnson went 10th to the Expos. Okay. Uh, must not have signed, right? Because then he got drafted again by the, by the Marlins. By the Marlins. He was like their first ever pick. Did Calvin here. Murray ever play for the Cubs? I feel like he did. I, uh, he did. I think he did. I think he did. Okay. So he Center was, field. He was the 11th pick for the Indians. Jeff Juden. Oh. The Jeff Astros. Juden. Yeah, I've got a funny Jeff Juden story that I'll save for when we do 1996. Uh, let's see. Cal Eldred went to the Brewers, 17th. Future Cub, Willie yep, Green. Future White Sox. Got picked by the Pirates. Yeah. I remember the, who, who, who could forget the Willie Green and Shane Andrews the dynamic duo at third base in the 2000 season? We'll get to that when we talk about 2000. 22nd pick in the draft, Future Cub, Tom Goodwin. Another sort of nondescript center fielder like Calvin Murray. One Cubs pick, had them both. One pick ahead of Mo Vaughn. The Dodgers probably wish they could have had that one over again. Uh, Alan Zinter for the Mets. And then um, here's pretty good value. 25th pick in the draft by the ex, by the Twins, Chuck Knobloch. Okay. Uh, future, kind of a stand- hey, there's a, here's a great one. A, a future Chicago Bull was the 26th pick in the draft. A future Chicago he Bulls. Won was it three ch- NBA championships for the Bulls? Uh, Scott Williams. No, but you you got half the name right. Scott. Scott Burrell. Yep, he was. He, uh, I think Burrell only won the the number title number six. I don't think he was on all three of the final. No, yeah, but, he certainly was on the last dance because. Well, yeah, he was. When, when I had when George, I had Kelly George on the podcast, bag. he talked about how. Uh, one of the reasons that they didn't they didn't really get into the documentary. One of the reasons that um, Jordan picked on Burl so much was Burl gave him shit one time about how much better baseball player he was than Jordan was. Oh, and Jordan Jesus. didn't believe it, and then somebody had to tell him that he was a first round draft pick in baseball. That ties back into this. You just pointed it out. He was drafted in '89. Wow, that's wow. Actually, so we, that's... okay. One last thing before we go. This is something we should probably do every time. We should probably look at who they picked that year 
Uh, can Talking I guess? Ninety-two. I think Probably he was brought up last week because I because I think he was who they traded for Brian McRae. Would it have been um, uh, Derek? Is it Derek? What's his name? Derek Wallace. Was that Larry Himes' first pick? I don't know why I can't commit him to memory. I know he got. I know he drafted Keishnick yes. in '93. Derek Wallace. It was Derek Wallace the eleventh pick? Who? All right, let's follow it. Derek Wallace became, as we learned last time, Brian McRae, who became, you know, parts of Manny, Manny Alexander, Mark Clark. I think I think the the line died there. I don't think we got anything for those guys. Uh, I'm still going to dwell on the fact that we end up with Larry Lubers for Rafael Palmero. This was we not got, a good draft, except for well, it's one notable exception. 1992 yeah. draft, jeez. First pick uh, was Phil Nevin. Yeah, wow. And, well, that can tell the story now because he's not a, he's not with the Cubs anymore. Um, so a, f- me- a few years ago, uh, it my in laws lived in Arizona. We were going to be in Arizona for spring training, so I uh, called Len Casper, and Len took my wife and me out for dinner. I remember that you wrote about it, pretty, you know, yeah, a little bit. And Barry doesn't know anything about my wife. Barry doesn't know anything about baseball really. But she really liked Len because he's such a nice guy and easy to talk to. And so she just asked him, um, first she asked him, like, who's your favorite guy that you've ever, like, covered in baseball? And I don't remember who he said, but I distinctly remember then when she asked him who his least favorite guy was. And he looked at me and he goes, you can't write this. I said, I won't. He goes, it's Phil Nevin. With just (laughs) disgust. (laughs) It was great. I, I I had heard, you know, even like above ground reports that Nevin was a bit of a cantankerous. Phil, prick. the only good thing Phil ever did for the Cubs was he traded himself. Yes, because that was that the stage of the Hendry era where yep. guys did that. Yep. So yeah. Phil Nevin was the number one pick. Remember Paul Shuey, closer Vaguely. for the Indians. He was. Did he, he die in the boat accident? No, he wasn't one of those. Okay, um, sorry. Somebody named B.J. Wallace went third for the Expos, did, ne- did not play in the big leagues. Mm. Then Jeffrey Hammonds, the Orioles, Chad Matola right. to the Reds, and then this next guy turned out okay, uh, Derek Jeter to the Yankees. He was oh, the boy. sixth pick. Yeah. Kelvin Murray got picked again. Oh, Kelvin, like, Kelvin to liked college. to get drafted. Pete wow, Janicki first... for the Angels. And then guys that we heard of, Preston Wilson was a Met, got picked by the Mets. Bro- Future bro- Cub, bro- Michael Cubs Hart. In a one future Cub Michael Tucker went Michael to the Tucker Royals right before Derek Wallace mm-hmm. hit a grand slam against the Cubs in the playoffs. Ken Felder to the Brewers hmm. didn't make it to the big leagues. Chad His McConnell name to the Phillies. Fielder. Okay, yeah. was he tiny Felder? That wasn't that was something. No, I don't know. No, no, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't recall the name. Uh, Ron Valone pitched for the Cubs, right? Ron Valone pitched against the Cubs as a member of the Houston Astros and seemed to frustrate him like every soft tossing left. He was bad, so it felt like he'd pitch for the Cubs. No, I don't think he ever made his way to the Cubs. Pretty All right, sure. the other notables, uh, Shannon Stewart to the Blue Jays at 19. Yeah. Um, Rick Helling to the Rangers at 22. Future Cub oh, Jason my. Kendall to the Pirates at 23. How about that? And okay. I think we've run out of. Oh, and Johnny yeah, not- Damon. Okay, so uh, Damon, we, we know got, can't uh, handle his liquor. Uh, that's right, that's right. Royals, yeah. the thirty-fifth pick. So Hall of Famer and Jeter hit some good players. I, you know, baseball drafts are weird. You're always going to see guys you never heard of, guys that became obscure, mediocre players that would, would inevitably play for the Cubs, and then uh, 
Yeah. You'll get some. I mean, obviously, your best players were, I think, I mean, Bonds and Griffey, they're all first-round guys. But throughout the course of the first 30 picks, you just uh, – that's certainly true for the Cubs. Derek Wallace. Yeah, well, a quick look at their entire draft. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six of the 50 guys they picked – played at least one game in the big leagues. It's not a great percentage. Oh, my um, God. Especially when one was Derek Wallace. The best player they drafted that year, at least for them. Yeah, uh, for anybody. Brant Brown. Okay. The 11th pick of the, of the third round. And he was the best player. Yes. And Mike Hubbard was the eighth round pick. Kenny okay. Steenstra was the 11th rounder or 12th round pick. And hopes and for that's it. There is nothing. Um. Wait, who was the guy that you just mentioned? Uh, Brant Brown. Okay, I Brant will say Brown, Mike Hubbard, Brant, backup catcher. Yeah, Brant Brown did yield, so something came out of that because you know we'll, we'll cover the John Lieber years when we spin the wheel on it. They drafted another Pico, Brandon. I wonder if he's Jeff Pico's brother. I wonder if his wife also married a ball player. Because didn't wasn't Mark Grace's ex-wife sister-in-law? Jeff, your sister, Jeff Pico's wife, I believe. <laughs> I, I think they, they grew up in Peoria. I think they're two girls that married ball players. So one divorced Grace married Ray Liotta, one stayed married to Jeff Pico. No word on his brother. Jeff Pico for one game was the greatest cup pitcher of all time. If but his, he threw a second. His he, he threw a second shutout later that year too. Right, though. but if he if he retired after his first game, yes. Immediate. People like you and me, what, the what's the first thing you think of? Right, threw a shutout in his first. Uh, so I think he was also kind of a useful uh, uh, bullpen guy in 89, too. So another Dallas Green draft pick. Yep. We'll come to that later. All right. So. Well, t- what do we got? Two down and 30 to go. Something like that. I mean, if it's easy. if it's, <laughs> I mean, I know we bleed into other years, but for the most part, I think we picked off all the uh, all the, all the high points of 92. I'm just glad I got the Cal Daniels in there. Yeah, we, mostly, we mostly stuck to 92. We alluded to other years. It's going to happen. Yeah. You know, we talk as we talk about eras, we talk about where the organization was, you know, more of the sort of broader tectonic, you know, movement, well, and for, so. and for full transparency, we didn't have to do it because we hit, we hit 92 this year. We have an internal rule that at least until the end, in case we run out of it and we can't do it, that like, so last week, last two weeks ago, we did 97, which meant if we had spun the wheel and hit 96 or 98, we would have respun because those are just too yep. close together. But yep. we hit 92. So next week, we can guarantee, or whenever we do this, two weeks, we can yep. guarantee you that it will not be 91 or 93. Right. And I think we talked plenty about 91 anyway, but we'll give it the full treatment whenever it comes up weeks down the road. And same goes for uh, for 93. So it'll be fun. It'll be fun to have if it lands on the 80s. We've covered two eras that were in that second Tribune era of uh, design, you know, mediocrity by design. So, you know, it'd be nice if, uh, you know, just to mix it up if it falls. But either way, I don't know. I, I had fun doing this still. I, I don't think well, it gets old, but uh, either way. The, the saddest thing about your your theory of this mediocrity by design, which I believe, is that I, it's happening right now. Again. It is. I know it is. I know it is. It's a new chapter. Yeah. I know. I know. Even worse because the the one yeah they we weren't getting about, rid of good players at that time. They just decided they would they never gonna... get rid of Grace or Sosa or Sandberg. Yeah, you know, that... under under the Tribune theory, 
Anthony Rizzo, Rizzo would have be been signed last year. He wouldn't yeah, even gotten to his walk year. They would have signed him. Yeah. And they probably would have tried to sign Javi. And Bryant is a guy they probably would have let go because he would have wanted to be paid what he's worth. Correct. Been he like, would have no, been the Maddox. No, we're not doing he that. He would have been the Maddox. But Absolutely. their whole thing would have been, we've got to pick one or two of these guys that the fans love. Right. And then the rest of the team can be shit. But the, the, we, right. look, we, you've got Javi and Rizzo. Right. There's what that McDonald's for. There's that McDonough element that was that was sort of in the shadows through both, you know, even from the Dallas Green era that helped drive that engine. And you're right. They're they walking away from Rizzo. That's one difference. But yeah, and they, they, they are – I have thought about that. They've returned to that. Right, and they don't have a – they don't have a McDonough, McDonough-like guy. They've got Crane, right. Who's, right. whose bonus is probably tied to how much money they can save off the payroll. Right. So he's happy to advocate to dump all these guys. Well, I, won't this I just affect could, TV ratings? Well, TV ratings suck anyway, so who cares? Uh, I just picture a room of people where Ryan Dempster is doing stand-up, and the only two people laughing are Crane and Todd Ricketts, and they're laughing hysterically, doing the weird thing where they, where people who clap with their hands like both straight up when they clap, ah! just going nuts in their seats. Oh, he's a he's a stitch. Ah, uh, so. All right. In time. Well, until next time, we will when we spin it again. Works for me. Happy opening day. Yep. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Andy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have herpes. 